Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Glasgow Film Festival returns for its 15th edition this month, and this year's programme is packed with premieres and exclusives. From Wednesday 20th of February to Sunday 3rd of March, the festival will host more than 300 screenings, talks and events, from special immersive pop-up screenings to the best world cinema and documentaries. It opens with Jonah Hill's mid-90s, and there's a great full Elaine May retrospective that we'd recommend. Check out the full programme at glasgowfilm.org festival and find your perfect movie mix. This week on Truth and Movies, Joe Cornish returns to the director's chair for the Arthurian adventure The Kid Who Would Be King. What if you're the only person who could have pulled that sword out? Rosamund Pike stars in the war correspondent biopic A Private War. No one in their right mind would do what you do, Bruni. But if you lose your conviction, then what hope do the rest of us have? And in Film Club, a screwball classic, Preston Sturgis's The Lady Eve. How are her teeth? Huh? Well, you should always pick one out with good teeth. It saves expense later. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, podcasters. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across from Adam Woodward from Little White Lies. Hello, good to be here. And Matt Thrift. Welcome back, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. So what's going on in the news, guys? We're still in Oscar season. The Academy Awards are just around the corner. Big news this week. Certain technical categories are being relegated to the ad breaks. How do you feel yeah, about that? So, so they've decided in their infinite wisdom, the Academy, that they're going to present the awards for cinematography, editing... There's a couple, I think it's Live makeup, action shorts. Live action short. There's three or four it's in And makeup, there. I think it's those four. They're going to be presenting them during the commercial breaks, mm-hmm. which they always do every year. I think they do some of the what the lesser awards during those breaks. But yeah, they, they just seem to fundamentally misread the room on this one. And a number of quite high profile directors have uh, voiced their concerns about this on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And Alfonso Cuaron quite eloquently pointing out that the word cinema is, is in cinematography and mm-hmm. you, know, you can't really have one without the other. So it does seem like an odd uh, odd decision from them. But I think just proves to me how irrelevant the Academy and awards like this, uh, major awards events um, at large are. Have, have you seen the, the sort of the slightly tinfoil hat theory about this? That, of course, ABC broadcast the Oscars owned by Disney. That it's the categories in which Disney produced films have no nominations oh, wow. have been cut. I haven't seen that. So if you think about the sort of Black Panthers and yeah. uh, Mary Poppinses, uh, etc., all of the categories they're nominated in, or, or Bow, the Pixar short, is animated short, whereas live action has been relegated. It's an interesting theory. I don't know how true it might be. Yeah, I guess that makes sense from a commercial point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's come from the higher ups so that they've just decided these are the films and 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 these are the awards we want to give more screen time to mm-hmm. it seems odd in a year which you've got no host which they've now confirmed so that you're not going to have these these lengthy monologues and it seems like it's 
going to be more potentially more streamlined than ever. Some of the performance live performances are going to mm. be quite short. They said it seems weird that they they can't find room somewhere in the telecast to actually get all the awards in. They've it, been it, cutting this down for you know the governor's awards you know, became a new thing a few years back. Mm -hmm. And it just seems that the head of the Academy and the head of ABC seem to be taking their cue from Theresa May and having this kind of red line of three hours that that they're refusing to back down on. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that that thing about the the Disney thing. That's really interesting. It's very interesting, isn't it? I'm, again, not sure how truthful it is. But it is a shame because this is a year where we have foreign language films up for both editing Mm. and cinematography. We have black and white films up for cinematography. Very unique year. And it'd be a shame to miss out on that. I've just got a feeling that this is going to be a bit of a failure of a year. I mean, they seem to be experimenting with a lot of things and ABC seemed to be really nervous about it, this whole popular film thing that was mooted and then dropped within a couple of months, Mm -hmm. six months back. For which it feels like they've effectively shoehorned in somehow and certainly in the best picture Mm -hmm. category. But I just Um, wonder if the blowback to all of this happening now with no host, you know, the category mess-ups and everything and this three-hour, it's just all going to going to blow up in their faces and lead to some better choices next year. Well, we'll have to see. But in the meantime, there'll be lots of Oscar chat coming up on this very podcast feed, won't there, Adam? Yeah, we've got a uh, an Oscar special, which we're going to release next week. Your good self on there. Uh, yes, indeed. Mediating a quite interesting and he- a sometimes heated conversation between David Jenkins and Robbie Collin from mm-hmm. The Telegraph. I've had a little sneak peek, listen to it, and it's it's pretty interesting. There's lots of stuff I didn't know about the Oscars and mm. kind of how it operates as a governing body, basically. And if you're a fan of David's wild takes... His tinfoil hat There theories, are plenty yeah. of those in there. But that's coming out next week. Have a listen. Back to this week, we have some new films to talk about. Up first, we have a roundtable discussion about The Kid Would Be King. So it has been several years since Joe Cornish made his directorial debut with the London set Alien Invasion Horror Attack the Block, and now he's back with The Kid Will Be King, a kid's adventure set in contemporary London with sword and sorcery fantasy flourishes. A young lad finds Excalibur, the legendary sword wielded by King Arthur, buried in a block of concrete on a building site. So could the world of myths and magic be real after all? Here's a clip. It's not Tintagel, it's Tintagel. And Tintagel's not a person. It's a place. An island off the coast of Cornwall. There's an old ruined castle there. Some people say it's where King Arthur was born. I went there once, when I was five. It's where my dad lived, the last time I ever saw him. It's where I was when he gave me this book. He even signed it. Look. To Alex, my once and future king, Dad. Alex, what if this is a message? What if you're the only person who could have pulled that sword out? What if it's... Come on, but you'll laugh at me. I won't, I promise. What if it's the sword in the stone? <laughs> so, Adam, it's been, gosh, seven or eight years since Attack the Block came out. And, of course, Joe Cornish has been working away in the background on the likes of The Avengers of Tintin and Ant-Man. Mm-hmm in the intervening years, but it's been quite a while coming, hasn't it? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but I was looking back at our... So we put Attack the Block on the cover of the magazine yeah. back in 2011 and had a kind of really interesting chat with Joe there talking about his, his career and, and I guess his ambitions and what, what he wanted to direct. And it's kind of a shame that it's been this long 
between the two projects. It does feel like getting a mid-sized movie with with no real stars attached to it is quite a difficult thing to get that made. You know, obviously, Attack the Block you look at now and it, it has John Boyega and Jodie Whittaker and, and, and all these people who've gone on to do amazing things, but at the time certainly was not a particularly exciting commercial prospect. I think this probably is going to suffer this, a similar fate. Mm-hmm. I know it's had a, a little bit of a rough opening weekend in the US. I really hope it's a film people go and see because I think it is it's quite a sweet film. Mm-hmm. It's also the sort of film you don't really see that often these days. It feels quite traditional, not just in the in, in the actual narrative, this kind of modern retelling of the Sword and the Stone story. But it just yeah, it just feels like quite conventional adventure movie made like for kids, mm-hmm. um, not in a way that's dumbed down or, or, or kind of talking down to them. Always trying to be too modern, relevant and cool. It just feels like a film which young people would want to go and see because it is this quite kind of fun adventure. And yeah, predominantly young cast who I think will work quite well together. Mm-hmm. There's a few nice cameos from Cornish regulars in there and Patrick Stewart rocks up at, at one point as well. So there's a few nice surprises in there for people. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I think the, the young cast, especially Lewis Circus, mm-hmm. son of Andy, I think he's terrific in the lead role. Mm-hmm. We've both interviewed him and what I like about him on this promotional tour, he's clearly considered what this film is and what he wants to do with this film. He's in the past been offered the likes of Star Trek and maybe DC movies, Marvel movies, but he really wanted to make something original, something that spoke directly to kids. He talks in interviews about how Nowadays, a family movie is for the whole family, or actually it skews upwards. A film like, I don't know, an X-Men movie or a Marvel movie is kind of aiming squarely in that 8 to 80 demographic so they can make $2 billion Mm -hmm. total. This film is very much, he says, for kids around 8 to 11, maybe. And it's not associated with the franchise, it's original, but it's inspired by the movies he saw growing up that were original back then but now have been revived and remade and sequelized into oblivion. Matt, does, does it work for you? Yeah, um, I mean, as best I remember it. I mean, it's been eight years since I saw it, but I mean, I remember rather liking Attack mm-hmm. the Block. I mean, I think that was definitely buoyed by Boyega, and I don't think there's, any, there's quite a charismatic, a central, or any other performance in this to kind of match that. You know, he's gone from, what, portrait to landscape mode for mm-hmm. this one, you know, swapping out the tower block for a suburban sprawl and effectively gentrifying himself in the in the process <laughs> i'm glad it's not a sort of meta postmodern nostalgia trip like so much is these days i mean it's very it is very contemporary film mm-hmm. but i still think that there is something kind of peculiarly old-fashioned in its britishness and i don't just mean the, the kind of arthurian allegory but more it's on its kind of british take on the blockbuster i mean when i was watching it i couldn't help thinking of that Blue Peter, Tracy Island, you know, so this is, just feels like the equivalent of a blockbuster fashioned out of a couple of loo rolls and a bit of string. And um, I mean, I guess if I was being generous, I, I would say it was charming. I mean, I think okay. it's inarguably sincere, mm. but I think it's also kind of inescapably a little bit rubbish as well. It's funny you talk about a homemade Tracy Island there because this is actually quite a large budget, mm-hmm. budgeted film. I think something like $60 million. And the credits have a lot of VFX mm. artists on there. And I think it looks like it cost money. Like they really do invest in the design and the action sequences in this film, mm. I think. You say that, but I mean, I think the the sort of video gamey mm. horsemen that are chasing him, you know, that have no real identity. I think Rebecca Ferguson is a completely wasted villain that you don't really see much of mm-hmm. until the big special effects ending. And, you know, I think he's he's a charming writer and the script is really well 
done conceptually, I think, but I just I also think that he can't direct for Toffee. Ooh, can you direct for Toffee, Adam? I disagree with that slightly. I think it's a different proposition to something like Attack the Block, which is a lot edgier and actually felt, to me, felt quite fresh, felt like the kind of British film that we don't see that often and was a little bit kind of swearier and more violent. And this is very much like a, a softer watered-down version of that, I think. Mm. Um, and, and Joe, he's someone who can clearly write comedy and you get this sense that he really knows the story he's trying to tell. There's a few muddled subplots to do with his estrangement from his father, young mm. Alex's estrangement from his father, and, as you say, the villain character, how that's kind of woven in. But I like the way he takes, like, real-world settings and reappropriates them for the story. Yeah. And you have, like, where would you find a, a you know, Excalibur in a modern-day setting? It would be probably in, like, a building site in, a, mm-hmm. in an urban area that's being, like, redeveloped and all these swanky flats being erected. There's a lot of stuff which is, like, quite subtle observational stuff on, on British life and, mm. and actually, like, the state of the world now. And it doesn't feel like he's pushing that too hard and there's certainly not too much of like a an agenda or like a political skew to it. So you can just watch it on one level of it being a quite kind of frolicsome, kiddie adventure movie. Whether that's enough for everyone, I don't know. I think people who are more conditioned to seeing like big, showy American blockbusters, it might not quicken the pulse enough. Mm-hmm. I should maybe qualify what I, what I just said actually a little bit because it is a little unfair and I do agree with, with a lot of what Adam just said but I just think it's more the action that I have Mm. to take issue with because there are some really nice performances from from the kids here I mean I think Angus Imry Mm. especially as Merton Merlin as a potentially star making performance and Andy Serkis's son uh, Louis, is it yeah. Louis? Louis yeah. yeah, it's terrific. Terrific. They're as really well. good. They're, they're very strong kid performances. I think. Um, yeah, Angus Imry is a, is, a, is a real scene stealer. It's funny. There's a theme that he's trying to inspire the kids with. This theme of anyone can, you know, be the King Arthur. The world is yours. Um, there are some amazing sequences early on where they're going through the world of chicken shops and uh, double decker buses and so on. And the newsstands outside newsagents just have the headlines "gloom and misery." And because I suppose kids growing up today are probably just mm. conditioned to hear that everything's going down the pan, it must feel, you know, hopeless. And he just wants to imbue them with hope that there will be a passing generation and mm-hmm. whatever. He seems really excited, as he did with Tyler Block. He's excited about the future, about kids today, as opposed to force feeding kids today with the stuff he liked when he was growing up. But I do think it's an interesting theme where both the breakout performances are kids from acting families. It's Celia Imri's son, ah, Angus. Right, okay. Although he looks like he's been brewed in a lab. He's this huge, <laughs> lanky <laughs> figure. Yeah. And his um, Merlin is so otherworldly. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. It's nice. I mean, I think that there definitely is, I mean, or maybe I'm just not seeing enough of them, but a kind of paucity of kind of sincere, like mm. I said earlier, you know, just not kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sort of meta, postmodern, you know, stranger thingsy. Mm-hmm. This has real kind of sincerity to it and, and real kind of respect, I think, for the various permutations of the legend as mm-hmm. well and weaves them in really, really well. I suppose it just reveals that issue now where do families go to see films where they all expect to be entertained cause, or do mm. parents, because it's half term, do parents take their kids expecting to doze off? <laughs> And the kids enjoy the film, mm-hmm. or have they been conditioned by Pixar and Marvel and all these you know, four-quadrant blockbusters now that there's something for everyone in these films? Because I don't necessarily think you need to watch it through the eyes of the kids in the room mm-hmm. in order to get everything from this film. Do you agree, Adam? Yeah, although there, there maybe aren't that many extra like meta levels of mm-hmm. kind of subtext. Or if I was a parent watching this, I would sort of 
be quite glad that it was a, a wholesome adventure movie for, for my kids to enjoy and mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't get as much out of it myself. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. It is a film, as I said, that, that is aimed at that younger demographic that is saying, look, go outside, feed your imagination. The world doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. And I think it's ultimately quite a, an optimistic and quite a hopeful film. Mm-hmm. Let's put some scores on this, Adam. So in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Well, it had been a long time, as we've said, since Joe had directed anything. It felt like the kind of thing that was a bit of a passion project potentially for him or, you know, I'd much rather see someone like Joe Cornish make this kind of film than just your run-of-the-mill, like, big Hollywood IP tentpole release. So I was quite looking forward to this. I'd say a high three in anticipation and probably a three for enjoyment and a three for in retrospect it, it's just on that cusp for me of, of tipping over into something a bit better i think i would re-watch it if it came on tv on a sunday afternoon there's a lot to like about it i'm not sure there's much to rediscover or extra layers of detail or feels like something's maybe missing a little bit mm-hmm. matt i guess three in advance i mean i enjoyed attack the block well enough then i'm watching it you know, I was probably a two, but then the, the more I hear you guys talking about it and, and reading and, and seeing your interviews with, with Cornish, I, I feel I'm being perhaps a little bit mean-spirited here. And, you know, and I, I did go into it expecting it to hew very close to the to the Amblin-Spielberg template, and and I am glad that it didn't, although I may not be so in love with what it actually did do. So a two or a three for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. I'll go with three and then a two in retrospect. Right. Well, I have followed Joe Cornish's career quite closely since Attack the Block, which I loved. And all of these either projects he was attached to and then moved on from or films he couldn't quite get the funding together for. So the fact that he has, he's back excites me to no end. So four in, in anticipation. And I really enjoyed this. I love living in his world for a bit. I love the, the eye that he sees contemporary London and Britain through. And this is very much, even though it's a different genre and it's skewing younger than Attack the Block, it's still the same world of chicken shops and scooters. And even though it's moved to slightly suburban, it also mirrors, this is very personal, I lived very close to where Attack the Block was set when Attack the Block came out and now I live very close to where The Kid with King was set. It's not for me. Unlike many films, it's not for men in their 30s. We have so many other films to to satisfy that. But I can't wait for my four-month-old son to be old enough to watch this. Although by that time this will feel very old-fashioned I'm sure so four in enjoyment it is slight it does dim in retrospect so probably three but I can't wait to see what he does next if now he's got this out of the way I really Mm -hmm. hope this is more like a Scott Pilgrim like with Edgar Wright if it didn't do so well it doesn't harm their prospects getting the next film made so we'll see anyway that's The Kid Would Be King up next we're off to Sri Lanka Syria with a private war Rosamund Pike here plays Marie Colvin, the multi-award winning war correspondent for the Sunday Times, and it follows Colvin from her coverage of the Sri Lankan Civil War, where in 2001 she lost the sight in her left eye after a rocket-propelled grenade attack, through to her death in Syria in 2012. The film focuses on the inherent and extreme dangers that come with reporting on conflict and the need for humanitarian journalism. Here's a clip that captures that, featuring Colvin in conversation with her editor, played by Tom Hollander. David Blundy. Who? David Blundy. What about him? Left for the Telegraph before you joined. I took his job. What is your point? And he was killed two years later in San Salvador. Jao Silva lost both legs at the knee in Kandahar while working for the New York Times. I was with him in Afghanistan. Safa Abu Saif. Who did he work for? She was a 12-year-old Palestinian girl. 
killed by a stray bullet that pierced her heart. I watched her parents hold her as she bled out. She was wearing pearl earrings. She probably thought she looked pretty that day. I see it. So you don't have to. How about the gardening section, Marie? Would that make you happy? One word to Watkins and you're there. Is that what they all died for? I don't know what they died for. Yes, you do. You see it so that we don't have to, yes, but also because you couldn't imagine a world in which you didn't. No one in their right mind would do what you do, Marie. But if you lose your conviction, then what hope do the rest of us have? Yes, that's Rosman Pike in that clip, in case you'd forgotten. So, Matt, we need to contextualise that, really, because out yeah. of context, that's quite late in the film as well. It is, yeah. and, I mean, Rosman Pike is drunk in that scene. The character <laughs> is drunk, so that is that is not the entirety of her performance. Uh, but it um, is a deep performance. She goes into this character, right? I think it's a lot of performance. <laughs> yes. I made the mistake, or perhaps not the mistake, I mean, I, I watched this back-to-back a couple of days ago with Under the Wire, which I hadn't seen. The documentary. The documentary, which is currently on iPlayer for the mm-hmm. next month, so I'm telling you the other night. I don't think that this holds up especially well compared to that. I mean, right, I've got okay. a much a much richer sense of who Marie Colvin was from the documentary mm-hmm. than I did from this. I think Rosamund Pike is a, is a really good actress in lots of things, but I think she's really lumbered by a pretty poor explicit script here that that really kind of reduces her character to a few pretty easily digestible character traits. Mm -hmm. You know, that she suffers from PTSD, she's an alcoholic. I mean, there are a couple of terrible scenes that really... There's one where she's on a boat with her mate and... Her mate says, do you think you might be suffering from PTSD? And she's like, you mean post-traumatic stress disorder? And it's, you know, really, really shoved down your throat. And then the alcoholism, you know, there's a scene where she's getting very drunk in her flat that is, you know, cross-cut with with the scenes of her at war. And it's a shame, really, because Matthew Heineman, I mean, Mm. he's a a fellow traveller with with Marie Colvin, you know, based on the documentaries that he's made. The the Cartel Land was Mm. really good and City of Ghosts as well. So, I mean, he certainly has a, a sense of her journey, I guess, from from his own as a documentary filmmaker. But I just think it falls into that biography trap that, that you don't get from the documentary. I mean, as well, you know, watching Paul Conroy, who is her, was Marie Colvin's photographer, one of the few that she was able to work with for an extended period. I mean, you watch this brilliantly charismatic man in the documentary, Conroy telling her story and we're lumbered with this black hole of charisma, Jamie Dornan, that just seems to suck the energy out of every single scene that he's in. Is Paul Conroy from Liverpool? I can't really place yes. Jamie Dornan's he's, accent. He's from, he's from Liverpool and <laughs> Jamie Dornan is from somewhere in the Irish Sea, um, it seems. You know, there is some really good stuff in it as well, though. I mean, I think that, the, uh, that Tom Hollander is excellent and mm. the movie is at its best when it's kind of doing the dance between the ethical and the business concerns of the character in the newspaper. You know, he's trying to push her into ever more dangerous situations so that he can, because, you know, she's the Sunday Times' star reporter, Mm -hmm. so he can shill more rags. And, you know, she's breaking down, essentially, but is also kind of addicted to the thrill of this, this pursuit of danger but not just danger she's very much a careerist at the same Mm. time and that's kind of where the more interesting stuff in her character comes from but that is kind of padded with a lot of you know awful generic 
stuff as well. It's a pretty really on the nose. You mm-hmm. mentioned one sequence, another one that I remembered was when she says to her character, so you want the psychobabble? I'll tell you my entire emotional history. Absolutely, with Jamie Dorn in the yeah. rehab clinic. But at the same time, it's a screenplay and a film that really is curious and interested in what drives somebody to do this, but then mm. also the infrastructure around them, why we should be covering this, why we yep. should be exposing specific journalists to bear witness for our benefit. Another one of the lines that is quite on the nose, lots of on the nose lines here, is that what she's experiencing is the first draft of history, yeah. which is really some really fascinating stuff to chew on, whilst the film can mm-hmm. be quite mm, shonky at times. And it's generous with her text as well, which I really mm-hmm. liked. You know, it's the the excerpts of her reading really gave a good sense of, of quite how brilliant and evocative and mm. kind of visceral a, a writer she was as well. And, it, and it's, it, this premiered at the Autumn Festivals last year around the same time as a film we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman. This is not a badass revenge thriller. It uh-huh. very much focuses on the trauma and the danger and the peril of being in these situations. Just because she has an eye patch doesn't mean that she's performing feats of, sure. uh, of, of, of adventure you know, uh-huh. while she's doing this. Adam, how did you respond to a private war yeah quite similar to to both of you guys i think um heineman you mentioned city of ghosts which is an amazing documentary which uh tells the story of what's been happening in aleppo over the past mm-hmm. few years and you can tell that that aspect of the story is what heineman is really like grounded in and interested in so you have the whole narrative building up to homs in 2012 mm-hmm. is it and that end sequence i think is the best part of the film when effectively you know this the end of the road for her and that question of I guess it's everything that's been laid down about her character and her personality and and this addiction it ultimately does pay off because the reason she's there and and is still there at the end is, is not necessarily just because of that like this whole question mark of can you actually make a difference mm-hmm. I feel like the film answers that in a very articulate and quite moving way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it takes a long time to get there. And there's just so many moments of like tedious monologuing and proper like capital A acting from Rosamund Pike, and, uh, which, as you say, comes from a very blunt and sort of straightforward screenplay. It actually counts down to Homs, doesn't it? It's, you know, from the, from the first instance, it's, you know, you get 10 years before Homs, mm-hmm. then seven years, then five and so on. As though the film is saying that there's a certain inevitability to what's yeah. going to happen to a person that puts herself in this position, and yet she's willing to do it anyway, which... You know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure how that kind of the idea of lionizing her in that way, given the complexities of the character is seems like again like another kind of reduction. And it works in both directions as well because it it's, it starts with this countdown, but then the first proper sequence is her losing her eye, mm-hmm. and it really just just positions this as what can be lost, the cost, mm-hmm. and so on, mm-hmm. rather than it does plumb these steps later on about. Mm-hmm publishing and so on and journalism but it does frame it in a way that is quite sensationalist maybe Mm -hmm. at times Uh, I'm I'm just remembering it I'm hitting upon scenes and scenes and scenes of probably the worst of the biopic there's a scene a very a sickly cute scene of her interviewing Colonel Gaddafi I mean this is probably very true as well but the way it's positioned in the film is almost like oh Gaddafi says that you're the only woman that he'd rather he'd like to talk to in the world even more than Condi Rice Mm -hmm. it's a bit bizarre and another fellow traveller in the world of war journalism wanders over to him and goes hey come on after everything I did for you in East Timor and weird flourishes in the screenplay that really shouldn't be there I mean I really do recommend watching Under the Wire Mm -hmm. I mean it's I I thought it was really I mean she was a real a real character and a half, you know, so acerbic and so so funny as well. Right. And I mean, I found myself laughing through quite a lot of Under the Wire, which I certainly didn't do at any point mm-hmm. in 
a private war. So again, I think that Rosamund Pike really, really goes for it here. And I do think she's a good actor. But I just, I don't think the film or her performance really captures the Marie Colvin that I saw in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad there's a documentary out there because this mm. was one of those films where I was immediately on Wikipedia afterwards saying, yeah. is there something better yeah, yeah. that I can get to grips with? Let's put some scores on this, uh, Matt. I mean, three, I guess. I mean, I was curious about an awards contending performance, apparently, back in the festivals. You know, two and two. I mean, I think it's got a few interesting things that it never really follows through on. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty basic. Adam. Yeah, I've matched those scores. I think it's a little bit too preoccupied with presenting her in quite kind of actually quite a kind of two-dimensional reductive way i mean she's constantly smoking cigarettes and yeah just the addiction aspect of her personality it's forced home to the point that it kind of obscures other aspects of her other traits um, which i think is a real shame because as you say matt watching that documentary there's so much more to her Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she has so much more character and personality than is presented here but i mean rosamund pike does okay with the material she's given i guess certainly not a performance i remember though overall in, in the kind of positive so I'd say yeah three two two for me I think if I were twos across the board for me really this looks like failed Oscar bait and it was more interesting than that because of all these threads but they're threads that frustrated me in the moment mm-hmm. and I'm glad I can follow through on them elsewhere there is a, a cameo or a couple of scene performance from Stanley Tucci in this film very much as the lover that could have been so if you're a fan of, of the Tooch cooking eggs in a penthouse overlooking the Thames, maybe find that scene on YouTube. But otherwise, I wouldn't recommend this. But that was A Private War. We have a stone-cold screwball classic coming up next for Film Club with a Lady Eve. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. We're going back to 1941 now for The Lady Eve, the screwball comedy classic from writer-director Preston Sturgis. Sturgis was one of the first writers in Hollywood history to wrestle his way into the director's chair, and The Lady Eve is one of the peaks of his over. It's the story of a dorky heir to a brewery fortune targeted by a cunning con woman and her crew. Henry Fonda is the mark in a rare comedic pratfalling turn, but dominating the entire film is Barbara Stanwyck at her sharp, sexy, scene-stealing best. Are you always going to be interested in snakes? Snakes are my life, in a way. What a life. No, I I suppose it does sound sort of silly. I mean, I suppose I should have married, settled down. I imagine my father always wanted me to. As a matter of fact, he's told me so rather plainly. I just never cared for the brewing business. Oh, you say that's why you've never married? No, it's just I've never met her. Suppose she's around somewhere in the world. Uh, It would be too bad if you never bumped into each other. Well... I... I suppose you know what she looks like and everything? I think so. 
<laughs> I'll bet she looks like Marguerite and Faust. Oh, no, she isn't. I mean, she hasn't. She's not as bulky as an opera singer. Oh, how are her teeth? Huh? Well, you should always pick one out with good teeth. It saves expense later. Barbara Stanwyck there. So the jumping off point for this film club pick is that Lady Eve is getting a re-release by the British Film Institute to tie in with their Barbara Stanwyck season. So, Adam, let's put this in context for Barbara Stanwyck newcomers, shall we? So this is one of her great performances, but she had a long career in various comedy and film noir films. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is by no means a kind of early breakout hit for her. She was well established at this point and, and probably along with Sturgis really operating at the peak of her powers mm-hmm. we had a comment from Richard Johnson mentioning Dublin Indemnity and saying this has to go a long way to beat that and I think probably this along with Dublin Indemnity are the two performances that people know best very different of course mm-hmm. and she's playing a kind of classic femme fatale in that I think this is probably my, my favourite though I think she's just so witty and mm-hmm. just yeah, it just really holds your attention and, and sort of dominates the screen in a way that very few leading ladies, I think, ever have done. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan, Matt? Oh, God, yeah. I was trying to think this morning what my favourite Sturges movie of the, what dozen of them might be. I think this probably takes it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Unfaithfully Yours I really like and The Palm Beach Story. But yeah, this is probably the one. I mean, he's just, you know, one of the greatest writers of dialogue for starters in, in all of cinema, you know, him and Charles Lederer and mm-hmm. I.L. Diamond and Lubitsch. It's, it's interesting that it was a long time before I heard his name. Right. I, I, I was a good maybe 10, 15 years into watching films and being interested in the history of Hollywood, really, before I, before he came up. Why well, I might guess, he not have well, I guess his, Billy Wilder did, etc.? Well, his big moment, I think, came with, well, certainly in, in my kind of film discoveries with the release of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers yes, movie. Right. So that gave a renewed interest in, in Sturge's work mm-hmm. from Sullivan's Travels. Mm. Uh, Sullivan's Travels was is a film about a filmmaker who is making a film called Oh Brother Where Art Thou mm-hmm. about the plight of the impoverished and decides that he's going to disguise himself as a rough sleeper and take to the streets to experience what it's like to mm-hmm. live so that he can make his movie as true to life as possible. It's, it's probably one of my least favourite of Sturge's films, okay. actually. I, mean, I think it's quite glib in its uh, point that, you know, all poor people need to do is see a funny movie and smile, uh-huh. you know, to get over everything. But The Lady Eve... The Lady Eve, right the Lady Eve is fantastic. I mean, yeah, Stanwyck and... You know, Sturge's is, is, a, is a real kind of humanist, I think, and has a real sense of class consciousness. Mm. I mean, he's always punching up. You think Sullivan's Travels, actually, is probably the only one of... Sturge's movies where the main protagonist, so in this case Henry Fonda in that case in Solomon's Travels, John McRae where he isn't a chump mm-hmm. and you know Henry Fonda is a, you know, a dim patsy in this a snake expert that can't see the one you know, wrapped around his leg. But, you know, he's, he's also kind of counterbalanced by his very sharp and smart valet mm-hmm. uh, Muggsy, which is this incredible performance from William Damarest who was in you know, most of well, at least half a dozen of uh, of Sturge's films as well. Mm-hmm. Just hilarious. Mm-hmm. Positively the same dame. Yeah. I hadn't really seen Henry Fonda in a role like this. He's much more like The Wrong Man, etc., or the westerns yeah. he's in, where he's much more of a solid bloke. I mean, I guess a couple of years before he did Young Mr. Lincoln, uh-huh. which, you know, again, he starts off as this kind of quite naive you know, honourable. But yeah, I mean, he's really, he's, he is playing against type here and 
And he's very, very funny. And when you have a six-foot-something actor like that, you want to see him trip up, Absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah. Multiple times. In fact, Preston Sturges, in his, in his uh, autobiography, he was told by the money people that he had to keep the pratfalls down to under five. And... Uh, but he, he decided just to ignore that advice in the hope that the audience would go with him. And that's, uh, yeah, this ended why, up being one of his biggest hits. You think it's a good job Henry Fonda was quite established by this point, because otherwise he might have been typecast yeah. in these kind of roles, because he just plays it to a T. I mean, this kind of dopish, very gullible figure who you're never really fully sympathetic towards as well. No. I love the bit where he's basically explaining to his valet that um, it can't possibly be the same woman because it's, it's kind of too obvious a, a ploy. And you think, yeah, he, he really would believe that. He really would buy into that because mm-hmm. he is that much of a dope. I mean, you're totally on the side of the card sharps here, I think. I mean, certainly with Stanwyck and, you know, those are the most enjoyable characters in the film, I think. It's incredible the energy that she can bring to a oh, film. Amazing. Any preconception that black and white movies or movies from a certain era that energy and emotion was introduced mm. into Hollywood in the 1950s with Brando it's completely out of that she is just sparking every, every scene she's in I love the, the scene where she's observing Henry Fonda's character in the mirror through her, yeah. her compact mirror and she's narrating the scene and likewise when he's changing her shoes yeah the seduction oh, scene yeah. afterwards is, mm-hmm. uh, is on fire isn't it she's fantastic Uh, Would we have another recommendation beyond maybe Double Indemnity? The other Preston Sturges film Mm -hmm. that Stanwyck did, which wasn't directed by him, it was directed by Mitchell Leeson, Remember the Night. Mm -hmm. So Sturges wrote a couple of screenplays for him before he insisted on on a directing career of his own. It should be a sort of perennial Christmas movie, but Mm -hmm. isn't isn't perhaps as well known as as some of the others. But it's just fantastic. Fred Um, McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, one, one Stanwyck film that comes to mind for me is 40 Guns, the Samuel yeah, Fuller yeah. film, which is maybe a decade and a half after this uh-huh. film, which is older, but she's the matriarch that leads a posse that is defending their you know their, their ranch. And it's a completely different yeah. energy, but Stampede scene in that, though, of course. Yeah. Brilliant. But that season is playing out at the BFI. This film, The Lady Eve, and maybe one or two others mm-hmm. are touring the country. We'd strongly recommend them. And that wraps things up for this week. Next week... We have On the Basis of Sex, the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic directed by Mimi Leader, starring Felicity Jones and Army Hammer. We have Capernaum, which was one of the hits of Cannes last year. Nadine Labaki, we both saw that, Adam, out there. Yeah. It'll be interesting to revisit that now. It's on release. And for Film Club, off the back of On the Basis of Sex, we're going to revisit Mimi Leader's 1998 disaster movie, Deep Impact. <laughs> You're laughing, Matt. You found. I mean, oh God, I haven't seen it since 1998. Well, the, part of the reason we to fun. pick this is because it was, I think, at the time, the biggest budgeted film directed by a woman, mm. and it also was released the same summer as Michael Bay's Armageddon. It's very interesting to see the two different trajectories uh, yeah. those directors went on after that. And really interesting that I think still it's in the top five largest budgets ever given to a, a female director, it, uh, even though it's 20 years old. Morgan Freeman as the president, right? Tia Leone okay. is in there as well. Right. It, it, I'm going to watch this tonight. That's, yeah. that's, um, it sounds fun. Let us know what you think of Deep Impact at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or at the comments section at ldlies.com slash podcast. Thank you, Adam Woodward, Matthew Fifth, for joining me today. Thank you. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Shh.